Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Indivina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Today, my guest is Mike Watts, who's an amazing engineer based out of New York City. He runs Voodoo Studios. And Mike has worked with a lot of great bands in the indie and punk genres. He's worked with bands like As Tall as Lions, Glassjaw, The Deer Hunter, and so many others. Now, to be honest with you, this episode ended up becoming a completely different episode than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I had a whole other list of questions that I wanted to ask Mike, and we didn't get to any of them. But but honestly, for a good reason, when you hear this episode, we got into such a great conversation all about learning to differentiate yourself and building your studio business. So if you're someone who's looking to get into the industry and you want to get paid off of your craft and you're looking to build your studio, then you're definitely going to love this interview because... We talked all about the different ways to get in, get your foot in the door, start building up your clientele and adapting your business to grow your audience and and create a better experience for people and ultimately just have success in this industry. So I think you're going to find a lot of value out of this. It got me really energized and got my gears going. I had a whole bunch of great ideas afterwards. So let's not waste any more time. Let's just get right into this interview. This is my interview with Mike Watts of Voodoo Studios. Mike Watts, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Very flattering. Very flattering. Awesome. Well, for people who might not be familiar with who you are, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, and how you got into mixing? I started off uh, younger in my life as a restaurant manager. (laughs) I wanted really badly to uh, make records, produce, engineer, all that stuff. And, you know, life kind of surrounded me and took me into, you know, started off waiting tables to make money while I was going through college and found out that restaurant management was a pretty good gig for finances and it was very steady, but it obviously wasn't my passion. So I saved up a bunch of money and bought some really shitty gear uh and uh ended up opening up like a you know a place in a rehearsal room i lived there with my two cats and uh you know i was 24 years ago i just i always wanted to you know make music my my life i was a drummer and a bass player from like five six years old just always loved uh being involved with music and always in bands and you know as a president of band in high school nerding out a little bit and uh <clears throat> but as soon as I got to that adult era, you know, because I'm a little older, it was you were either in a in a, a major label band or you were a cover band back then. There was no like real solid indie labels or indie bands I could tour and make a living. So I had to make a decision, and you know, I I really loved being in the studio. I was always finding myself in these little studios, and and uh, that pushed me away from being a musician and wanting to be more of the producer mixer. As soon as I walked into a first big studio at like 23 years old. It's like, wow, I don't ever want to go on tour again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just kept pursuing and pursuing. I was always like working in restaurants and trying to record the wedding bands there, you know, as a maitre d' in a hotel and, hey, you guys should record with me. And they're like, you're the maitre d', man. Who wants to record with you? So uh, <laughs> it took me the effort to decide that I needed to make a life change. I was either going to be very dissatisfied with my life as it was and just 
go on and on and, and do what a majority of, of the population does, or I was going to uh, take that leap of faith and, you know, move forward. And I, I went for it. You know, I, I got rid of all my worldly needs. I didn't need the the Porsche. I didn't need the fancy clothes. I, I sold everything and, and, again, moved into a little rehearsal room. And I just went to every show I could possibly go to, local and or not. And I was recording everything, hip-hop. Uh, I was recording choirs, churches, uh, bad bands, good bands, uh, voiceover work. Anything I could hit the record button for, I would do as opposed to you know, working in catering or restaurants. So uh, that was, again, 24 years ago. And, you know, my dad didn't lend me a million dollars to start my business. It was uh, everything I've purchased or have achieved has been one piece of equipment at a time. As the business would go and go, I would continue to go and grow. And uh, eventually a young band came in. They were 14 years old and I was just, you know, still in my first studio because I bounced around a few and found bigger and bigger locations. And uh, and the band was, uh, they were called Sundays at the time. They were like 14, 15 years old, uh, coming out of high school. They were coming from a private school, Catholic school. They would show up in their uniforms. And uh, it turned out to be as tall as lions. You know, they, uh, yeah, then they made a good run. And uh, as soon as that record hit and just seemed that hopes fall happened at the same time, like 2003, 2004, my phone just rang off the hook because those two records came out around the same time. And I was like spinning around. I really don't even think sonically I was ready for it. You know, <laughs> uh, it was just like, wow, that record's so great. And I'm like, yeah, but you're a punk band, you know, half the times when I was working with other bands. So I don't think I was doing my best work still, even though some really great bands had come through my hands. I don't think I was quite able to handle it at first, you know? That's amazing. Like, there's so much to unpack from that story there. And I I love it. I love that you just, like, made that big change to to decide to just go for it. And, you know, like, I think... That's one of the scary things about this industry is that like when you have a, a cushy job or you're, you're in a comfortable position, it's hard to be like, I'm going to go do this thing that I'm not sure is going to work and just take a chance on it. And, you know, everyone always talks about all oh, the musicians are broke, blah, blah, blah. So it's like even scarier when you like add that into the equation, right? Like to take that leap. So it's 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 amazing to hear you just say like, well, this was what, what I'm passionate about. So of course I'm going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's life in and of itself is, you know, you can either do what you love to do. You know, I teach a class at a, at a college and I'm like the last guy they see before they go out into the real world, you know? So, uh, I, I get to kind of give them a real world experience. I'm like, you have an opportunity here to either, you know, take your 24 hours and make it about something you love or not, you know? Uh, so, I, I didn't have a choice, really. It was either that or, you know, most of my awake time was going to be dissatisfied with the rest of my life. And as far as starving musicians, you know, uh, the most successful musicians that I work with are the hardest working ones, not necessarily the most talented ones. You know, the ones who grind and and, and find other avenues and learn how to multi-stream and figure out other, you know, sources of income. You know, the, the smart ones are the ones who are successful. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that. Like, I feel like whenever I hear somebody like bash 
some pop star and like write them off as like, oh, whatever. It's just crappy music. It's like, well, they worked their ass off to get there. You know, it's not a coincidence that someone's at the top right now, whether you like it or not. It's like they're they're working their ass off. So they got noticed. So what are you doing about it to get noticed? You know, <laughs> I, I firmly agree with that. Yeah, there, it's always a journey and it's never going to not be a journey and it's never going to not be tumultuous because it's not steady. And so you can until you can figure out how to steady the ship a little bit, somewhat, you know, as time goes on, you start figuring more and more things out. But again, you can either live your life uh, and always look back and be like, what if I, you know, or I should have, and I can't be like that. You only live once. I don't want to be looking back and be like, man, if I could have only utilized the talents that I was given, you know, because I feel that every human is given some set of talent and it's up to you to develop and move forward and, and conquer. And fear is nothing that, you know, you should Take on fear as a positive thing and, 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 and survival instincts is something that should move you forward and not frighten you into a, a comfort zone or a shell. You know, that, that's always been my thing. Like I had a partner when I, when I like two years in and he passed away in a motorcycle accident. But one of the things he said to me was like, failure is not an option. It just doesn't exist. We're going to move forward no matter what. If we're slow, we're going to get bands and artists. You know, if we run out of money, we're not going to run it. We'll take part-time jobs. Whatever it is, the studio is not going under and we're not going to fail. So that has gone, you know, I still talk about that 22 years later. That was something he said to me and, and I carried it with me pretty seriously. I love that. That's That's so true. I mean, you can't, if you get lazy with it, you're not going to have any success with it. That's for sure. And you can't, you can't give up. So yeah, I absolutely love that. And um, yeah, just like another point that you brought up earlier when you were, you were talking about how you got your breakthrough when those two records came out and you at the time felt like maybe your quality wasn't even at the, at the level that you wanted it to be. But you know, that, that, that in itself is a good lesson to learn because I think there's a lot of people who want to get into this professionally, but feel like they can't because their quality isn't at a certain level. And because of that, they just never get into it. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, because I think that's it's such an important point to just jump in and get that experience and ride the wave, I guess, right? Uh, there's two points to be made here. The best thing you can do to ultimately uh, improve on your quality is just record as much as you can and as many people as you can and in the worst possible situations as you can. You know, I get mixes sent to me where the you know, the recordings aren't the best and it's up to me to bring it to the next level. Well, same thing when you're producing and engineering, the band comes in and, you know, the drummer's insistent on using his drums and they haven't changed the heads in 10 years and the guitarist wants to use his hundred dollar, you know, app, you know, and it's up to you to make those or learn how to change that and or make those decisions and stand strong in order to get a good uh, product and practice on them. The other point I want to make out is even though my skill set may have not been the best at the time, the band and the songs were more important than my great bass or snare sound or vocal, you know, tracking. That was second to how good the songs were. One thing I was always good at uh, was being musical and learning how to get the best out of uh, the artist and the singer specifically. If you can get a great performance out of the singer, the rest is just grains of you know grains of sand in the background. If you can get something believable and conviction from your artist, 
then the rest is cool. You know, it's great to enhance that vocal with wonderful production, but it's, it's not the end all be all. And that's something that's taken me a real long time to learn and be like, wow, the vocal performance is so critical. Well, then what do you do when you're working with a covet or a, you know, tides of man or, you know, these bands that are instrumental bands? Then what do you do? How do you create that same emotion? Well, then, it's even more hyper-focused. Then you really have to get these melodies and performances to, to move you and make sure that the dynamics and the excitement in the songs continue to uh, engage with the listener. Then, then you have to think completely, I don't have a singer now to sell this song. You know, so uh, first and foremost, I guess, figure out how to get a convincing performance out of the artist you're working with. That will supersede any of your engineering or skill set. Secondly, work with as many possible up and coming or good musicians as you can. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I think it's so true. It's like we often put all this pressure on ourselves that we got to have the perfect mic positioning and we have to have the like the most expensive gear and, you know, like really have our engineering chops up to a certain point. But it's like at the end of the day, a crappy recording is still going to be saved by an amazing song and amazing performance. So it's like, you kind of just need to learn when you're first starting, you almost need to just learn how to get the signal going. And then like step two is almost like learn how to coach a, a musician through their performance. And then, and if you put those two together, then you can at least get started and, and roll with that, you know, uh, case in point, there's a song out just came out called uh, driver's license, Olivia Rodrigo. I don't really get a chance to listen to pop music that often. But uh, there's a story behind this, and that's why I'm bringing it up. When you listen to that song, all the way up until the second verse, it's basically piano and vocal. So where's the big production in it? The production is in how the producer captured that performance and, and deliver, deliver, delivery from her and her conviction and how much you believe not only what she's saying, but how she's delivering it. Funny enough, the guy who wrote the song and produced the song is Dan from Astala's Lions. So, no way. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why I listen to the song because everybody's telling me like, you got to hear this song that Dan wrote, you know, or co-wrote or whatever. And then I check it out on Saturday Night Live and there's Dan from Astala's Lions playing bass, you know, and, and with the biggest smile on his face. So, you know, I obviously called him and congratulated him on his work. He's turned into a very uh, successful songwriter and, and he's always been an exceptional songwriter, which goes to show first and foremost that Astala's Lions record hit because people like these songs are incredible. And now he's writing pop songs that are incredible. Yeah, it's, it's it, yeah. It doesn't matter really what genre it is. It's like if you have that talent to to make incredible songs, whatever you can you can do it in anything really. Yep, great songs and an and, a, and an incredible delivery from your vocalist for you know that that's critical. Yeah. So so speaking of incredible deliveries and and you'd mentioned like getting a captivating performance out of an artist. What are some of your tips for for making sure that your artists are getting those kind of performances? Well, I need to make sure that, you know, I always try and make sure that the writer or lyricist, which usually ends up being the singer in most cases, uh, is very, very, very familiar with their lyrics. Them writing it in the vocal booth is never gonna, in my opinion, be the best it could possibly be. Some people can pull it off. I've worked with some that I'm like, how did you even write that there and deliver it there? You know, I won't even say names because <laughs> I'm, I'm astonished sometimes how that works. But I would prefer that a songwriter sends me the lyrics and we go over them, makes sure that these lyrics are just 
engraved and they believe whatever story, excuse me, they're trying to say and portray. And then I'll work with them through section by section and make sure if it's a delicate spot and it's intimate, get super close to the mic so I can, I want to feel that vocal. I want to, I want to feel like they're sitting in front of me telling their story with, with all their heart, you know, and that's what I'll continue to do. You know, if the chorus is big, then, then belt it out and I'll work on the levels and the mic pre and all that stuff. But I need to capture their conviction. I need to get into their head that this is their one chance to tell the story of the song and the reason they wrote this song. You have one opportunity, one listen through to, to make your statement. One. So it's not about how much I fucking auto tune it and how much 50 times harmonies I put on it and stun it with reverb and delight. No, it, almost the best vocals that I love are like dry and right up front where I feel what the singer is telling me or believe conviction, conviction, conviction. Tom Higginson. Oh, what'd you do to me? Come on. It's guitar on a vocal song of the year. Olivia Rodrigo right now. Song of the year. Like, these are epic, epic songs because you believe what they're saying. All the harmonies and auto-tune in the world won't make it any better. I need to make sure I believe that singer. So again, work, working through them phrase by phrase if I have to. Until I have a meter, it's called goosebumps. As soon as a hair on my arm goes up and I get goosebumps, then I know. I'm like, everybody's going to dig this. Everybody's going to like this. I love that. That's the goosebump meter is always a winner. It, it works. You know, <laughs> when I work with Casey from the deer hunter, it's like, I don't even have to tell him. He just knows. And he knows his lyrics so well by the time he ever, anytime I get to record him, I'm, I'm like, dude, how, how, how are you doing this? You know, he's just, every note that comes out is just like, you know, and I prefer to stay away from any tuning anyway. I just, I think it takes character out of a vocal. You know, you you wonder just on the technical side, you spend all this money on a $10,000 mic and a $3,000 mic pre, make sure it's going through a vintage 1176 barrel conversion. You got like a $25,000 chain and then you put a $50 plug-in on it to tune it. You know, you kind of change the timbre of the vocal and too much. I hear it. And, you know, if I'm hearing it, then it, it, it might affect the listener. So you, you work with your artist hour after hour after hour instead of getting a vocal for 20 minutes and you going in and thinking you're more important than them. You're not. Continue to work with them until you get a performance that, you know, you don't have to tune. For sure. Well, I, th I think part of it, too, with singers is it is such a intimate instrument. You know, it's like it's not this physical extension of yourself that you're just bashing away on or strumming or whatever, it, you know, it is your body. So like you're self-conscious about your body, plus the fact that you're singing lyrics that often are very personal or that tell some, some hard stories to tell and that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of insecurity associated with vocals. And I think that a lot of singers just struggle with that or they don't, they, they, you know, some people just feel like, oh, if I just get these lyrics out, then that's all I need to do. But it's like tapping into that emotion so you get that performance. That's the real challenge for both the engineer and the artist as well. Like, in my opinion, I, I, I try to take it from their perspective. If I was seeing what environment would I want to be in where I could, you know, forget about my surroundings and just tap into the raw motion of the song. So when it comes to working with a vocalist or even the studio here, the lighting is very specific. 
The colors is are very specific on the walls. It's always dim. It's always private. My studio feels like you're in like a, a, a an old, you know, a modern rustic castle. It's like dark and dim and there's candles and cool lamps in the vocal booth. Does that make an effect? Fuck yes. Absolutely. You put a vocalist in the shiniest room with the lights on and the walls are all white. Man, they are tense. If I dim the lights and get them in their zone, they just seem to like get in this, you know, subconscious sleep zone, maybe, where they're able to not be so focused on and uh, get to release themselves. I I've just noticed it. I've had, you know, my other studio is like super bright. My partner's like, we got to paint it yellow and red. And I'm like, all right. And, you know, everybody, I just didn't get the same energy personally. And I know that affects the musicians too. So everything in my place is like dimly lit dark, warm colors, every light's on a dimmer to bring it down, put them in their comfort zone. You know, I have curtains in front of my ESO booths that I can put over so we can't see each other and we just verbally communicate. You know, vocalists, for the most part, do not want to be looked at when they're singing and they're pouring their heart out. They don't want to be seen. They want to be in their own little world and, and, and trying to, you know, push out their emotions. So I try and before they even walk in there, set that vibe up for success. I love that, man. And and now that I think about it, you know, you've you've kind of explained how you you create this environment for the artists to come into and feel comfortable. And you know, going back to what you said at the very beginning of like there was no failing with the studio, and it seems like everything you've done up to this point has always been with intention. And it's like it's learning, and it's like. Let's just see how this works. And if we have to adapt, we adapt. And like, but, but you've been kind of just constantly working on preventing this failure of your studio, you know, like you're just, you've, you've decided to like really pay attention to the little intricacies that make your studio stand out over so and so down the street, you know? That's funny you say that because, uh, unaware to me, I don't, I'm, but maybe subconsciously, I, Absolutely do that. Uh, this is my third location, the one that I'm in now, and this is the this is the final permanent location. You know, I I had a, a large first. I started with that small space, moved into a much larger facility, four thousand square feet. I had four studios going on, and I bought a house, and that was that was really expensive to try and manipulate finances or you know navigate through those two locations with two electric two. Uh, cable bills, to oil bills, to insurance bills, to phone bills, to everything. So I, you know, I thought about it and I was like, how can I, how can I kind of go back to tying this in together? And some people are like, well, you don't want to live where you work. I'm like, if you find a, a decent enough size property, you certainly can, you know, a, a house with a garage or something like that. So that's what I found. I found a house that had a very large garage. It's like 12 car garage. And the thing that was important to me was that it had like 24 foot ceilings. Cause in order to record horns, choirs, gang vocals, drums to the correct way, I, I really needed a large live room. And that's something I learned from my last two studios that having high ceilings was really important to the, you know, the regeneration of, of uh, natural reverb and making the drum kit sound great. Uh, so yeah, everything I've done and whether I consciously or subconsciously thought about it, everywhere I moved, I was like, I got to make sure my next place has big ceilings. I got to make sure that I can get good reverb drum sounds without having to, you know, put a mic down the hallway, which works or put it in an ISO booth with the door open, which works. But then you're, you know, you're stuck with the sound of the ISO booth or whatever these other 
studios do that treat their live rooms as large ISO booths and then have to figure out how to make a, a big drum sound. I'm like, how about I just have a big room with a big drum sound? <clears throat> you know, and then on second note of that, like the house here and the property, it's like, we're going to change the name to Voodoo Studios and Resort. And I'm serious because we finally renovated the front of the house and we put in a bar and there's an Olympic-sized swimming pool here that we allow guests, uh, guests, clients to use. And there's an outdoor bar, you know, that seats like 15 people. And uh, I mean, we've set it up. So the whole thing is like, there used to be a studio called Longview Farms upstate New York in the Catskills and bands would go there and just shack up there to chef. You never left the property and you were so wrapped up in making your record that all you did was wake up, eat, make your record. And I try to make it that way here too. Bands come for a month. You don't have to go down the street to get food. You don't have to go to a bar. You don't have to do anything. Everything's here. You want to walk away. You want to watch the hockey game. It's on a screen TV with a fireplace under it. You want to go to the bar. The bar is there with a fireplace in the corner. We've set it up as a resort uh, location now. That's that's so awesome cuz you know going from starting very very small and minimal and you said you you know you started with some crappy gear and now you've like you've built it to your resort you know like how how amazing is that you know that that it's so cool and and I really think that that says a lot about your attention to detail with every aspect not just your records and how good quality you get but like making that experience something that bands don't forget and that they want to keep coming back to you because it, it separates you from so many other people. It's, it's incredible. You know, I've, I always, I, I've heard stories like bands who've come to me and they're recording like, wow, it's so incredibly roomy, spacious, comfortable in here. I feel like I'm in my house. I'm in my living room. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, incredible to hear. What was it like last place? Well, only two of us can fit in the control room. And the other guys had to wait at the hotel down the block while we were tracking, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, what the rest of the band couldn't be involved in the tracking of certain parts of the songs. It doesn't make any sense to me how in God's name, that's really putting faith in your producer that I don't really care what the band says. I'm doing this without you guys. And that's, you know, immediately I was like, okay, I got to fix this. Another thing I did early on in my uh, commercial facility was uh, I remember every time when I was super busy like that, I was getting, tons and tons of label calls, you know, like over and over. And they're like, are their hotels close? Are their motels close? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, in the revolving door of this motel around the block for me. And I was like, gee, I got an extra room in the back. What if I just throw like six bunks back there and a TV and a couch and, you know, separate a little bit and hired a contractor to do that? That was it. Then as soon as I figured out the band stay at the facility, wow. And then I was able to charge the labels, you know, well, you would have paid this much for the hotel. I'm going to charge you 25% of that so your bank can stay here. This is great to hear. You know, I, I think there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who have this this dream of doing this professionally and having a facility much like yours, um, but they don't even know where to begin with this necessarily. You know, like they're, they're still stuck in that headspace of my skills aren't good, so they, they don't know where to begin. I, I'd love to just step back a little bit and go to the very beginning of the studio. When you were first just, you, you left your job in the catering industry and you're like, I'm going to make a go at this with the studio. Where were you looking for artists? Like, how are you finding artists? And, and what would you recommend for people these days to, to find new artists to work with or, or get started at least? Network to get work. Love that. First of all, <laughs> never seem desperate, always seem busy, 
even if you're not. Compliment bands. Don't email them and be like, hey, man, you should record with me. That never works. Never, ever. The, they laugh at that. That's out of the question. FaceTime. You need to be in a room with them and next to them and approach them. Be like, you guys are great. What I always did was uh, I'd walk over to the merch table at the end of the show where the band was sitting, and I'd pick up the record and be like, wow, you guys are killer on stage. Where did you guys record this? Who'd you work with? Oh, I worked with uh, such and such. I'm like, oh, yeah, he's really good. I, I mixed a record that he produced. Oh, did you? Yeah, Mike Watts. Oh, fuck. Hey, man, great to meet you. Now I'm in the door. It was never that I was the best guy, but I was always the guy in the room. I would be the one. It took me like three years to work with Oh Brother. I followed them around like a puppy. I would go to their shows. I knew their manager. I would do anything in my power just to get to work with them. And I was already established and they had, you know, I couldn't even get backstage to meet them. And I had already done like bands that they knew and people that they knew who I was. I just kept being persistent. So persistent without seeming desperate. And then uh, in order to get early clients, you need to have your studio appear to have some perceived value. When they walk into your place, it can't be the same laptop and speakers on a table that they have in their bedroom laptop and speakers on a table next to the sock drawer with the dirty underwear in the corner. What makes you think that they're going to believe you can do better work than they can at home? They have to walk in and be like, oh, fuck. Look at this shit. This guy is for real. Doesn't mean you have to buy an SSL, but when they walk in your door, it better look like a studio, like you mean business and this is your shit. You know, if you don't believe in investing in yourself, then you are meant to be a catering manager and that's fine. You know, I don't invest in the stock market. I invest in me and my business and alternate businesses that I start. That's it. I'm not going to wait on another stock to grow and grow my own stuff, grow my own weed. That's great. Yeah, because I think, you know, obviously having some portfolio under your belt and, and having some good records under your belt or good quality, like that's one differentiator. But yeah, you're right. Like if, you know, if it would be like if you were to like go mix a record with like Chris Lord Algae or something like that and like he takes you into his like basement and it's just like, you know, a little like focus right interface or something like that. You'd be like, this is weird. This isn't the experience I expected. Right. It would like kind of set you in a weird tone or something, you know, like, so you do have to have some sort of environment, right? Like, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Cause I did that with Tom Lord algae, uh, three years ago, just because, you know, he's the guy that I've looked up to for years. Every time, you know, in the nineties, early 2000, you listen to the radio, he mixed everything everything until he turned down green day and then his brother took over so uh <clears throat> i heard that story straight from tom so it was either avril lavigne in his studio or go to california and do green day and uh he chose to stay back and chris got green day and then the, the lord algae's flipped but uh yeah we went to his house and uh he did the same thing. He was like, I'm tired of renting a place and splitting money with a studio. So I brought it here and it was up in his garage and you're walking through his garage past this lawnmower and you get upstairs and all of a sudden, there it is. The room, the SSL, the big monitor, the speakers, the, the Neves on the wall. And it was just like, ah, yeah, if I walked in and he had a Focusrite Scarlet or something, I'd have been like, what? <laughs> and even him, you know, he's 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, he would have done a good job, yeah. but you, you still would have been like confused by the whole experience. Yeah. Yeah, I would have. Well, yeah, I would have been. But early on, when you're a new buck and you don't have any discography, if you're good enough to convince people to come check out your place and you can help them, it better look like something when they walk through that door. You just like that vocalist, man, you got that one shot to show them stuff and you better have your best mixes on cue. So what have you been working on? I worked on this. Boom. And then they're like, Oh shit. And then you have to play their last record against it. And then you're like, God, I hope I win. And if your stuff sounds better than what they did in their basement on their laptop, then you're going to get the claim. So it sounds interesting. Like basically what, I, what I'm kind of making out of what you're saying here is that when you're in the pursuit of a client, you're, you're providing this like experience for them. It's not just, you're not just going through email. You're like, Hey, come to the studio before we like talk. Like let's, let me give you the experience before we even start recording, you know, whereas some people are just like, let's just do everything through email. It's like very informal. And you're like, no, let me like blow you away with this experience beforehand. And, and to me, that is like a major differentiator that I think people forget to do, you know, it's, it's, Email is so convenient, so we just do it. But we don't realize the the adverse effects of it of like not creating that environment and not differentiating yourself from from so many other people. And if they can't come here because I'm about to work with an, a band, I mean, a band for the first time, and I think they're from Oregon or something. I'm not sure. Band is a. Uh, I'm gonna mix their record. They're called Holy Fawn. They're on Triple Crown, and uh, I never met them. And it was a bunch of email chains. And I was like, you know what? Let's do a phone conversation. We need we need to talk. I need to discuss with you my ideologies and how I foresee things going. And you need to tell me, you know, your thought process because I did a test mix for them. And then, you know, I really wanted the band. I know they're great. And, you know, I, I, I didn't do this with them, but many times I'll set this up, a Zoom call, so they can get personal with me, with me and see my mannerisms and, and see how passionate I am about it. And, of course the SSLs in the background that's not in their sock room, you know, and like, you know, some sort of perceived value, you know, that still matters and it will still matter. Yeah. I mean, even, even, uh, I mean, people can't see this cause they're listening to the audio from this, but you know, when we first got on the call, I, your video right now, it's, I can see you got this beautiful studio. You've got the lights dimmed. You've got the, like, you know, the backlighting of the purple stuff going on. You can see the board. You had the $10,000 mic, like, it, it was an impressive setup right from the get-go. So, like, when I see that, I'm like, this guy's a pro. Like, you know, there's there's just an immediate perception of who you are and the quality you can bring and the experience you can bring. Whereas, like, you know, if someone's in their bedroom, it's very different. <laughs> you have to always present that to any level of artist. You must be the professional at all times when you're with them. You know, once they're here and they love you and trust you and have worked with you six, seven times or whatever you know i just did a nova charisma record they just left yesterday uh and you know they're on equal vision but i've worked with donovan and sergio on so many things you know we i show up in my pajamas every day it's like i don't have to wear that mask for them anymore they know the skill set they know what's coming out of the studio they know the attention to detail that myself and my team is gonna give to them and the experience they're gonna have when they're here so i don't have to do that anymore but you know on first meeting you don't want to hand somebody a ripped up business card you know you, you have to give them your best effort certainly and it's not even a facade at all it's just like how you represent yourself as a professional you know 
I, I don't fake it. You know, the proof is in, is in the sound quality and the, and the, and the longevity of a career. You know, at 24 years at this, 24 years of self-sustaining from producing and studio work. That's it. I have no side jobs. I mean, I've opened up other businesses. You know, uh, I have that video company with Tom Flynn, who does incredible work, and he's out there busy. And, you know, he was an engineer here, and we just developed him into he always wanted to do video. I'm like, I'll give you a bunch of local bands, man, because there is no local guy around here who can shoot videos. You know, every video I saw or was talking to bands that I had worked with, they're like, yeah, we shot it with a Joe because he uh, runs a wedding video company. I'm like, well, that's not going to work out. And it looked like wedding videos. So I'm like, imagine having a musician as a videographer or a DP. So Tom was perfect. And now, you know, he's done Covet and Hope's Fall. And we did a Lamb of God, two videos together. And he, he, the, the list of his discography is escalating as we go. He does anywhere from eight to 10 videos a month. Now, he's just so fucking busy. And uh, yeah, and I invested in it. I invested in him and helped buy the equipment for him. And, you know, he and I pulled together and we have a, we have a handshake relationship at this point in time. Our business is a handshake and that's so good. We trust each other so much and his talent is, is impeccable, you know? So that, that, that's what I invested in. That's what I believe in. Just how can you expand on your brand, you know? Yeah, I mean, it really is. It comes all down to the experience you provide for people and creating that environment that they want to be in. Um, and I, I think we've talked a lot about like the atmosphere of being in your studio and that experience there. Um, I'd love to get into some of the mixing side of things and talk a little bit about just your records. And and actually, on the topic of atmosphere, there was one question that I had for you that I, that I was curious to hear from you. One of the records that I love of yours is the Sound of the Gates uh, Bloom and Breathe record. Like that record to me, it just sounds incredible. And like, and and one aspect of that record that really stands out to me is that there's some like really lush reverbs in there. There's lots of cool atmosphere on that record, and it just really has its own cool tone. Like it, it just it has a vibe to it. And I think you know, going back to that intimacy and and getting the performance of the artist, like that that record has it. It, it you know, from a performance aspect and and from a mixing side of it, I, I feel that record. You know. Um, so when it comes to choosing things like reverbs to use and how, how to set your reverb time and how to like clean up your mixes with, because like, reverb can definitely make your mixes sound muddy as well. Right. So there's, there's that tendency a lot of newbies have to like just overload reverb and their mixes become really muddy and you can't make out anything. So when it comes to choosing what kind of reverbs to use or um, you know, how to dial in your settings, what advice do you have for that? Yeah. A bunch of the reverb as far as guitars tracking on that Gates record were, were printed they're tracked with that reverb and or that room miking on it. Uh, those were not mixed decisions. Those were track decisions. And if I needed to enhance them when I mixed and I would add it a little later, it's never, you have to understand that if I'm, if, if it's all up to me to create that, that ambience that makes that record sound specific, as you said, that needs to be captured you know, while you're tracking, that will give each artist its own unique identifier. Because if it's left up to me, then I have my five reverb settings on my desk that I will throw up and, and every record will have the same reverb-ish type of sound on the guitars and, and ambient sounds, et cetera, et cetera. You know, drum selection is very important. Room miking is very important. The, the, and the, you know, reverb is meant to be felt, not heard. 
type of thing so that you know and uh making those decisions while you're tracking again the goose pump meter if you're in the room and you're like wow that guitar sounds a little dry and somebody in the room's like yeah i don't get it. don't worry we'll get that reverb in the mix i'm like no uh i want you to feel the right part by the right amount of reverb right fucking now right now so we'll go for reverbs and delays and get that atmosphere created around the guitar and therefore the guitarist will give me the best performance because he's feeling what it's supposed to sound like tracking stuff to like di guitars and plugins ugh, god I, I have to go for a sound on my records that's maybe why I have been blessed and grateful enough to work with such a diverse group of artists that sound unique from one another. I'm not, and nothing wrong with the metalcore guys who do that stuff, but in my opinion, their records all sound identical to each other. You know, without the vocalist sound a little different or whatever, it's like, hey, this is what works for me and this is what I'm going to do. So, you know, when you go from like an As Tall As Lions to a Hope's Fall to a Deer Hunter to a Covet to a Tides of Man to Gates, every one of them sounds different. All those records sound unique because we achieve those tones while tracking. Reverbs, delays, while tracking. You have to see the bucket of reverbs they bring and delay pedals they bring. Same with Covet, same with Deer Hunter, same with Tall as Lions. Anything ambient or lush I've done, they come with an array of flavors, you know? When I when I color on a coloring book, I want 64 crayons. I want 128 crayons. I want all the crayons. I don't want just what's on my console to bring up my eight reverbs. You know, in order to create that unique sound, you do it for me. You do it when it's happening. To me, that gives the most emotional results. I love that. That's that's great advice because I think that you know there is this tendency to you know what you know as an engineer. So like you kind of just to make the process go smoother. Some people just default to whatever they know, and that and that's just the process, right? But to me, it sounds like your approach is more like let the band do its thing. If they're coming in with all this like excessive gear or whatever, let's just use it. Let's go with it. Let's let's make it their sound. That guitar player's worked on his tone for two, three, five, ten. Kevin from Gates, man, he knows reverbs and delays so well. And, and, you know, every guitar player in that band, they know their sound. So it's up to me just to be like, wow, okay, that's how you wrote it. Let me capture that to the best of my ability. You know, oh, you have a little too much bottom end, I'll filter it out. Oh, it's a hair too much reverb. It's not fitting in the track. Let's dial it back a little bit on the spot. Okay, all three of you play guitar. Let's see how they fit together. That was another thing with them. Three great guitarists in the band. How am I supposed to sort that out? I remember saying stuff to them like, I feel like I'm sorting through spaghetti with you guys. Because <laughs> everybody's playing another <laughs> intertwined note. And I'm like, we have to make all this shit work together. So that was the challenge of always working with that band and uh, you know, bands like that with three guitar players. But eventually... You know, all of them together, Ethan too, great, great, great players just figured out how to complement each other. And sometimes that takes being in the studio, hearing the right sound, how it's going to match with the drums and the, and the bass that you've already tracked, and then deciding how they're going to fit together. You can't wait for that to work itself out in the mix. That has to be committed to while tracking, in my opinion, to get the most effective and, you know, unique identifier type of results where... Again, this band sounds like them, 
and that band sounds like them. Not all these bands sound like one big fucking band, you know? So I would assume then that pre-production plays a big role in your productions. It does. Yes, it definitely does. I used to spend an enormous amount of time with some of the earlier bands, like uh, going to their rehearsal rooms, drove out to New Jersey a bunch of times, do Gates pre-pro and as tall as lions that record i did i got it was like two months i was in the rehearsal room every night you know sorting out rhythm sections kick drum patterns locking up with the bass guitars but uh now instead of that i try to have them do it here you know instead of me going to the rehearsal room and going through with them and then they retain only like 50 percent of what we discussed and they go back to their old habits now i'll do it here song by song okay let's take this song and pull it apart and put it back together And we spend an enormous amount of time making sure it's the right kick drum sound, it's the right snare selection, the right cymbals for the song that's going to work. If you're going to a ride, is it a bell type of ride or is it a glassy type of ride? You know, and and picking those very specific crayons for your color palette and just to start. And that will set you up for success. We're doing distorted bass, we're doing smooth bass, we're doing flat lines on the bass, we're doing, you know... Per song, per song, to make sure each song has its own unique personality, as opposed to like, well, here's a drum set up, let's track it. Oh, here's a bass set up, let's track it. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Let's get each song, not only band to sound unique, but each song should sound unique. Not so far removed that it doesn't fit in the in the you know the context of the record, but you know, the, the record should be a roller coaster ride of of interesting uh, you know peaks and valleys. So got to do that within the record and then within each song too. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's the attention to detail that, that really makes your record stand out. And it, it's now that I'm hearing you talk about your process, it's like, it makes sense. You know, it's every, everything is intentional and, and I love that. And, and I think that that also, when I, when I listen to your discography, like there's, there is a lot of variety in there. So it makes sense that like, you can't just do the same thing all the time and just every band sounds the same it's like you're you're letting the bands come in their sound but you like you're massaging it a little you're working with them to figure out how this all fits together and you know how to prevent people from their instruments fighting each other that kind of stuff and and i, I love that approach it's, it's great yeah i know it takes longer that way i know and i don't make as much money per per day doing it that way but i've never tried to make music to make money <laughs> that's if that's your goal to make great amount of money making music then then you're thinking wrong the idea is to make great great music to to the best of your ability and then if you're decent at it and you have enough perseverance in it then the financial reward will come so you you can't put the money first of course you got to survive but you can't put like wow i want to have a hit song for that's not the goal you know do your best all the time to make it great, each sound, each part along the way. And there are plenty of times we'll track something and then I'll be like, man, that either needs more or that needs less or that's not working. We got to go back and retrack that because I made a mistake, you know, and we dialed up the wrong tone and there's too much reverb or, you know, so that happens too. Well, I think that says something too, like to go back to your earlier point of just like, the fear of failure and how you'll experiment and, and, and just like push yourself to learn. It's like the people who go into it with a specific intent of I'm into this to make money. I'm in it to only have a hit, that kind of thing. Their careers are very short lived because they, they fail very quickly 
and they never learn to adapt. They never learn to change or pay attention to those little details that allow them to grow. And, you know, it makes sense that like for you in those early days, yeah, you were recording some good bands, some crappy bands, but you were just working your way up and working your way up. And then you, you eventually hit it. You know, you had a band that had, had some success, a couple of bands that had some success, and that got your name on the map. And then that allowed you to grow even further. And, and you're still growing with it, which which I love. Um, but, you know, had you gone into this thinking, like, I, I got to get rich off my first record. It's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it, that's never happening. And and that's another thing I asked my class. I'm like, and the, the main term I hear in music sometimes from unsigned newbie artists is when we make it. And I, I ask them that, and I ask my students that too. Like, give me your definition of making it. What does making it mean to you? And uh, somebody's like, I want to have a hit song and you know, have a lot of money. I'm like, okay. And then uh, two years after that, what? What's your, what's your plan for sustainability? You should be thinking slow and steady wins the race. Would you want to make, you know, Hundred thousand dollars first year, hundred and twenty the second year, hundred fifty the third year, and keep climbing that trajectory. Or would you want to make, you know, half a million dollars in one year, and then two years later you're a plumber? You know, what's what's your goal? You know, and the goal should be longevity. And that's why I've never chased the hit song. I've only chased, you know, conviction from my artists. So the listener has to go back and listen again. You know, the records I've done are obviously not conventional pop tunes. And quite frankly, I kind of shun away from that because to me, it's it's a little corny, <laughs> I'll say. You know, where, where pop music has gone now, it's, it's hard for me to listen when none of the artists out there have a recognizable voice. You know, none of the artists. And well, who's a rock star right now? Give me a rock star. What rock band is like, you know, where's Jimmy Page? Where's Jimi Hendrix? Where's, you know, Bob Dylan? Who is it right now? Crickets? Crickets? Nobody. Because all these artists are writing the same song and trying to sound like each other, you know, and that, and that's frightening. And pop music is the worst, you know, sinner when it comes to that. We're going to make a song hit, and then that artist is over. Their karaoke career is over after their one or two singles. Really, it's and that's frightening. So I never chased that. For sure. It, it's funny you bring up that, like, who's the rock star thing? Because I, I was recently watching um, Dave Grohl had directed some, like, documentary about, like, being in a band and, and touring with, with your band and blah, blah, blah. And I guess he was he was chatting with some guys in, like, U2 and Metallica. And I uh, can't remember who it was that said it to him. But, like, they said, like, who are the rock stars these days? You know, there's, like there's only a few of them left, you know, <laughs> like, and, and, and the funny thing was that like, they were like, and we're all from like the nineties really like, you know, or the early two thousands it was like leftover and like, there hasn't been a big change. So it's like, why is that happening? It's because people are doing a lot of generic stuff. They're not, they're not hustling as hard as these guys were back in the day. And it like, there's a reason again, going back to the beginning, it's like, there's a reason why people succeed. And so those are the people that are hustling their ass off and then if you get too comfy and decide to not hustle anymore, then make room for the next person, you know? Well, the artists aren't nearly as, they don't put as much time and effort in to be great at their craft and they see success probably before they deserve it so they can't sustain it. You know, the artists that you and I are talking about, like everybody in those bands are incredible musicians. 
you know, and therefore they deserve, you know, even Guns N' Roses, man, everybody in that band was fucking great. You know, they put on a live show, they sound like their records. You put some of these new bands up and I'm like, what a train wreck you are up there. How is that even possible? You know, but then again, I guess because of that lull, you know, labels, labels are just banks, man. They don't make decisions on good music. There's a choice few out there, but those are the ones who live in the world that I live in, in the indie world. Major labels are not signing rock bands because they, they don't believe in it and they don't get their return on their ROI or return on investment fast enough. They want to put a single out with a really beautiful girl. Boom, got that. Put a rapper up who's, you know, good looking and popular. Boom, got that million sold. You know, they're just looking for immediate return. There's no more long-term investment though, like there used to be. Like investing in, you know, again, a Bob Dylan or a Captain Beefheart or something crazy. The Eagles, Doobie Brothers. Listen at all these names. They're, they're so unique sounding, you know. Would Hendrix have won American Idol, you know? <laughs> would Jagger have won American Idol? You know, these, so it, 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 the music industry doesn't really go about catering to incredibly talented musicians anymore. It's who's fastest on the laptop and who can tune vocals the most and make it sound like Disney core, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that, man. I, I love the idea of, yeah, Jimi Hendrix on on American Idol or something. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's so ridiculous, but yeah, it's true. <laughs> You know, it, I, even like, you know, I, I I jokingly say that the Beatles were like the first boy band, you know, like they were like they if they came out now, I don't think that the they would have had the same success as they did back then, you know, but like there it's yeah, it's it's funny to think about how, how that would work. But but I mean, hey, those guys are still working their ass off the ones that are still alive. So, you know, they, they might have had success, you know, the amount of work they had to put in to do what they did. I mean. Look at the talent of the songwriters. I mean, Paul McCartney is one of the greatest musicians and songwriters probably that's ever been on the planet. His melodies and chord progressions, you can't touch that. The lyrics. Who wrote, who's written Let It Be, you know? That doesn't exist anymore. That, that, that's the disappointing part of my career, that music I hear now and songs, for the most part, just don't hit me and make me teary-eyed. I've started listening to some country artists because at least they're telling a, so a story and at least they're singing from their heart and, 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 you know, like a guy like Luke Combs. Man, I believe him when he sings and he writes the songs and tells his story and he's really good. And you know what? He's overweight and he's red hair and he's not a pop star, but he's so good that it was undeniable. He's so good. Grammy two years in a row for best artist. I mean, so good that it's, but at least country recognizes talent still. Pop music doesn't. It's, it's just a differentiating factor, right? It's like these people are doing what other people aren't. So that's how they stand out. And when you combine that, that genuine kind of heartfelt, honest songwriting with someone who is hustling their ass off, then it makes it easier to get noticed. And then and then you can really stand out. And I know we went all over the map, like from hardcore to country, but yeah, like I totally respect Luke Combs, his greatest story. You know, nobody wanted to sign him, you know, and uh, some guy was driving him around in a, in a van going, playing these little tiny shows. They put their song out he, like a hurricane on their own. Then all of a sudden they had 100,000 singles sold. 
Oh, then the labels come knocking. You know, that's hustling. But kid has talent, undeniable, undeniable talent. But so many people have that talent. You just go down the wrong path and think you need all this auto-tune and pop sensibility and, hey, put the 100 harmonies on my vocal. And then they lose the personal touch and the conviction and the believability as a songwriter, you know? Absolutely. I mean, there's there's so many different aspects to your business as a musician. You know, there's there's the songwriting side of it, but there's like growing your fan base as well. That's That takes some effort as well. And then there's marketing yourself. And, you know, there's all these different areas that you have to just kind of constantly be working at and differentiating yourself with and just hustling and, and not stopping on any of that because they all come together to help you grow. You know, I think of um, another artist that I think, you know, also, I'm going to say this, this artist's name and a bunch of people are going to like immediately discredit me for, for thinking this person's all right. But like Justin Bieber, for example, you know, like nowadays everyone knows him as a megastar, but like I, I was recently watching one of his like, uh, documentary films that they made about him and like they show him when he was like six years old hustling and like busking down like on the like street corners and stuff like that like a kid who's doing that they're working their way up you know like that wasn't just an overnight success and and i guess for me too like he he grew up in a city that's you know a couple hours from from where i am my my wife was born there um but uh so to, to have someone like the that close that had that much success and like see how they got their early start and just hustling and like i know a lot of people that that knew his knew him and his family and were like yeah we would see him on the corners of the streets like you know we'd go out for brunch and he was there you know he's like the young kid hustling his ass off it's like well no wonder that guy made his way up to the top it's like it, it was in his blood he did it from a young age maybe now he's being done with his money but i don't know i don't know but like but it takes that like you just have to put yourself out there you have to hustle your ass off and make yourself known and and good bad good or bad music doesn't really matter it's you know it's, it's that marketing and how, how how you build your fan base and how you nurture that fan base and and how you push yourself to just continually grow and, and keep top of mind i mean i don't listen to that at all and you know i would obviously be the same type of person but i you know to discredit uh him as a whatever he is but i can't i can't discredit him like you said i i know his backstory is hustle 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 and he can sing and he is a good looking kid and he can dance he's got the tools to be what he wanted to be just because i don't Listen to that music or go down that path doesn't mean I can't appreciate or respect uh, incredible work ethic and drive, you know. Like I said, he was given his talent and he learned how to develop it and, you know, and continue to develop it and and capitalize on it. So that's really, we're, again, we're all given a talent. So find your niche and learn it and develop it and, and capitalize on it. And I say that to my students all the time. You want to do this, go look in the mirror. How much effort are you putting into it? Ah, I work two hours a day on my music. I ask that class all. I, I ask that question all the time. How much time are you putting in on your music today? Ah, I didn't get to it. Uh, I, I do like, you know, an hour or two a night. I'm like, okay, maybe when you're 330, you'll make it. But with from part-time effort, you will get part-time results. And I learned that too. The, the reason or the thing that started me being able to sustain a living was when I walked out of the hotel restaurant catering hall and just did studio. I just, it was, you know, survival instincts. 
I have to do this. And if you're putting in full-time effort, you get full-time results. That's it. It's easy equation. You know, two hours a day on your music, forget it. Forget it. Maybe you'll stumble across a hit. Maybe somebody will, you know, buy it from you. I love these students that I have now. They all sit on their laptops and make beats. Like what, what separate, and there's nothing wrong with that, but what separates you from the 300 million other people doing that? It's true. You know, I think that we, we tend to see like the big stars at the top of their game. And we look up to those people and think like, oh, we can achieve that. But for every one of those people, there are millions of others that haven't achieved that level. And, and there's a smaller subset, but you know, there's maybe like thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that are making a living off of their music, but they're not the big pop star. So it's like, those people still have a lot of credit to them too. Like they're, they're working their ass off. There's some people that are more successful in some ways, you know, it's just like they're the, they're the uh, unsung heroes or the people that we don't really know their names yet, or, or, you know, like they're the background people. Um, But those people are the ones that are, that are working full time on their, on their job, making it work. Right. And, and uh, so, yeah, it all just comes down to having that drive to, to continue to push yourself and continue to, to uh, hustle and, and make your, craft get better and better every time you work you know that goes with any career in life how much effort it takes to be a professional athlete they're given a talent they're given a skill set they're given you know uh the size to be a professional athlete height and weight type of thing and they're again but they have to take that and work and work and develop and work and work and develop it into becoming elite or at least enough to sustain a living from it, you know, and that takes an enormous amount of drive effort. And so I, I say that to my students all the time, like, do you have that drive? Do you have that work ethic? Do you go look in the mirror and start blaming other people for your lack of success? Or do you look in the mirror and be like, you can try harder. You can do better. You can make that extra all right, I didn't want to go out tonight, but I have to go see these bands in the city. Even if I just, even if they just see my face, even if I just shake one manager's hand, even if I just approach that merch table, I'm like, wow, I really like what you did here. And, and look at the back of the record, man. Who did you work with? Oh, that's cool. Even if I hadn't mixed them, it's like, oh man, I really like his work. Yeah, I've heard a bunch of records he's done. And then that spawns a conversation like, oh, do you do recording too? Yeah, I don't, I, you know. Have a studio that I, you know, I just, I, I work on. Are you busy? Yeah, I, I'm busy, man. I'm busy. Even if you're not, I'm busy. Man, I got so much shit going on. I'm busy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> the fake it till you make it kind of thing. <laughs> well, kind of. You can't be like, well, I got nothing going on. I'd love for you guys to come in. I'll record you for free because that'll never work. <laughs> yeah, just with that, like, that, that one sentence there, it was like, you can immediately tell, like, hey, this person doesn't have their skills. They're they're desperate. <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot to unpack from just a simple line like that. That, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's the way of reaching out to an artist. You know, if there's an artist I want to work with, like, oh, brother, like I mentioned before, I would message them, be like, I really love your work, man. Keep going. Period. And not say anything else. Then it's, oh, thanks, man. Hey. Thanks, man. You know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. Sometimes the silence ends up uh, being your best tool when you're when you're having conversations or negotiating or that kind of thing, right? <laughs> Always. Uh, there's 
the comfortable way of selling yourself without overselling yourself. Absolutely. Well, I think we should wrap it up here because there, there's so much amazing stuff that we've covered in this last hour. And uh, yeah, I think that anyone who's listening to this, who's, you know, really contemplating like, like, I want to make this in the industry. How do I do this? I think that there's a lot of big lessons to learn in everything you've covered here today. So, so Mike, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to do this. This was, I, I felt powered up by, you know, like, you got me pumped. <laughs> well, just, just this thought process and, you know, the fact that I was teaching the class made me make a, a recording program similar to kind of what other people do, like, oh, here's how you EQ stuff, here's how you get guitar tones. But I do talk more about these motivational things in the in the business aspect and how to diversify your money. And we're, we're going to launch it within the next two months. It's called uh, Recording Producer Pro. And uh, it's going to be just you know, follow me around with a camera and me discussing how I track things and how I work with clients, how to get client one, how to get client two, how to continue those relationships. And, and, um, we're really excited about it because uh, I think I've learned one of, one of the things I like to do is motivate other people to be successful. I really, I really like helping people move along in this career and stop being fearful of failure, you know? Well, you're you're really good at it because yeah, I think a lot of people are going to get get really energized by this podcast episode. So, you know, keep up that great work. Um, if people want to learn more about you, obviously you just mentioned that link there. Um, how else can they learn more about you and follow you online? Uh, VoodooStudios.com, MikeWattsProducer.com. Uh, yeah, Voodoo Studio. I guess that's the best way. V U D U Studio. That's the one. Yeah. Awesome. And lastly, any cool projects that you're currently working on that you can talk about? Uh, that I could talk about? <laughs> uh, Nova Charisma was just in and they just left. Uh, I'm supposed to be mixing. Uh, uh, Holy Fawn is coming in at the end of the month. There's a band that's coming in to do some writing that I want to make sure that they're here before I say it, but it's I'm not even really involved, but I'm just stoked that they're coming. It's Taken Back Sunday. Uh, <clears throat> but I didn't even get it. Like my engineer, Frank, who co-produces all the records with me, got it. And then uh, I'm supposed to be mixing Angel Vivaldi after that. So uh, lots of, lots of, really oh, one thing I'm really happy about. I just got word that we're doing the 20th anniversary remix of Hope's Falls Satellite Years. And that's the record that I fell in love with them on that I didn't get to work on. And now I get to remix it. Oh, that's I'm amazing. So yeah. That, it's so, all coming full circle. Yeah, it is. So I'm stoked on that. We're probably going to rip a new single and do a live performance of them and, and video stream it here too while they're here and, and, and you know, maximize their time while they're here. So a bunch of good things, you know, re really excited that I get to sustain a living doing this, man. That's all it's about every day, waking up and walking in and making music. Absolutely, man. That, well, congrats to you on all your success. You've, you've definitely earned it. Thanks. And congrats to you, man. This, this uh, podcast is doing really well. Did a little of my own homework on you, man. You're, you're doing a great, doing great things out there and, and very flattering that you contacted me. Seriously. I, I'm overwhelmed whenever this sort of thing happens. I'm like, really? You give a crap what I have to say? You know? <laughs> Well, man, I, th I think that, uh, you know, you, you've definitely motivated people. There's a lot of inspirational stuff in here, and I think a lot of helpful, actionable stuff. So, you know, people who are serious about this, they're going to listen to this and be like, 
I got to do something with this. Like there's, I, I, you know, I just have a notepad here and I've just been keeping notes as you've been going along and it's already like, you know, full page of stuff, just little quotes here and there. So, you know, it's got me really pumped up. So, so yeah, thank you again for taking the time out of your day to do this. I really appreciate it. No worries. Anything else you have any, man, keep in contact. Let's keep in contact, man. So that was my interview with Mike Watts, and I absolutely loved this conversation. And I think it's a really good reminder of how to make your way into this industry and what you need to do to reach your goals with this and how to not give up. I love how he said at the very beginning, like, there was no option to fail, you know, and as you listen to Mike talk in that interview there, it's very clear that he was willing to work doing whatever it took to make his studio better, to get clients into it, improve the experience, and create a name for himself as an audio engineer. And uh, yeah, I just think there was so much great stuff to take out of that. So if you're someone who is seriously thinking about making a career off of your audio skills, definitely go back and re-listen to this episode because there's lots of great tips in here. Also, just as far as the mixing side of it, I think Mike had a lot of great advice too. You know, one of my favorite things that he said there was uh, on the co- on the topic of reverb, he said, reverb is meant to be felt, not heard. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone put it that way, but it makes a lot of sense. So um, definitely something that I'll be considering next time I go to make a mix. So I hope that you found that episode very helpful. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if this is your first time listening to the Master Mix podcast, definitely make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com, which is where I help out musicians with creating professional sounding recordings from their home studios so that you can showcase your talents in the best way possible and use those recordings to grow your career. So once again, visit MasterYourMix.com. And while you're there, definitely make sure to check out the Mixing Mindset book. This is a Amazon number one bestseller book that I put out a few years ago that really walks you through the process of creating professional rock mixes from your home studio. And it goes through step by step everything that you need to consider, all of the tools that you need to know how to use, what to do with them, how to analyze your tracks, know when to boost and cut, know when to add compression, know when to add reverb and effects, all of that kind of stuff. It takes you step by step through everything you need to know to create great mixes from your home studio. So definitely check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and you can get that at MasterYourMix.com. All right, that is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.